Hello, everybody, and welcome to Wellbeing in Focus, a podcast where I interview top experts in wellbeing, happiness, and parenthood. My name is Gabriela Campelli-Ignat, and I'm your host. Today, my guest is Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, behavior change scientist, TEDx and keynote speaker, podcast host, and burnout survivor. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Jacqueline. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today. Do tell me a little bit more about yourself. What is it that you do exactly? Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak as well with your audience today. So yes, I'm a behavioral scientist by training. I was a professor, a full-time academic for over 20 years working in public health and using behavior change science to help workplaces, schools, communities, care settings to be more healthy. So I've always come from that background. But actually, I experienced burnout myself, severe burnout four years ago, which led me to leaving that profession. It was just so much in such a highly competitive environment. I was very successful. I was bringing in lots of uh, millions of dollars from our, in the US National Institutes of Health to do research and interventions in this way. But it uh, was a very competitive environment. I kept taking on more and more leadership that then put me in situations where I did actually have really challenging working relationships. And then at the same time, I was a mom of two kids. My son was being diagnosed on the autism spectrum, and it just got overwhelming. And I didn't at the time know it was burnout, didn't really know how to process what I was going through but I got very desperate. So I ended up seeing the best thing to do was for me to, to leave a career that I was very passionate about, but also, you know, again, when you are passionate about something, you're also quite obsessed. So it, it can be really hard to put down the work sometimes. And when you're trying to be, you know, the best leader and very driven by what you do, plus you want to be the best mom, the two just collide and can become very overwhelming. So so that's what happened to me. And now I use my behavior change science skills still to help academics in any of their research projects and particularly in helping bringing in the grants to support health work. And then I also have my own podcast, Overcoming Working Mom Burnout, because I really don't want other mums to go through what I went through. And then I'm also helping organizations to think through their burnout strategies so that they can actually prevent burnout. And instead of saying, oh, take a vacation, that's going to help. They really understand what burnout is and what are the solutions that can help so many areas of a business, because it really overlaps with employee engagement, with wellness, with diversity, equity, inclusion, and and leadership development. So it's really core to um, a business to solve the root causes of burnout. Yes, that's very important because different things lead to burnout. In your experience, what is the core issue that leads to burnout? And you do mention that the causes can be different for men and women. And I'm very intrigued to find out more about this. Right. And I think that's one of the issues, particularly here in the US. We can very much say that the CEOs and and also pretty much the the C-suite, but actually the CEOs of most companies in the US are white men. And um, we have about 6% of women and only about 2% of women of color who, who are in those full leadership positions. 
And we're very capable of leading. And in fact, when we lead those companies, women who lead um, companies um, have three times more profit. So this is not a question of not being capable. But when we think about what those types of CEOs see, and we've been hearing a lot in the news recently, for example, Deloitte did a report saying that CEOs were burning out, Mm -hmm. but there was this huge mismatch between what the CEOs thought was needed for well-being and burnout and what employees thought. And so for me, it's partly because there's this big mismatch in their experiences of burnout. So in this situation, a CEO is likely very overworked, of course, has multiple stressful responsibilities, is obviously driven, highly successful, a lot of performance pressure from from many different areas, and really um, needs to focus on time management, stress management, um, delegating, those types of things. And yes, for someone like that, uh, a vacation, sabbatical, developing healthy um, coping habits, you know, not too much um, alcohol, plenty of sleep, exercise, then yes, those sorts of things are going to help that type of burnout. But really, that's only one type that um, one type of profile that I've identified, and I've identified six. So the first one is that profile, the the overworker. So that's somebody who's highly ambitious, highly driven, and and is overworked. And yes, um, you know they're experiencing exhaustion, cynicism, potentially depersonalization where they maybe don't even see their employees as humans as much anymore. And also then becoming very ineffective. So you could be sort of equally productive in terms of what you are achieving, but you may take hours and hours, so many more working hours to get to the same place. So you're really ineffective. And it's very hard to to admit that. And it's also very hard to admit that we're not good in all areas. Clearly something is not being done as well when we're that overwhelmed and exhausted. But then the other types, for example, there's a whole group of people who are definitely more on the spectrum of being perfectionist people pleasers. These are the people in companies that are trying to make sure everybody's needs are met. They're doing a great deal of unpaid office housework. They're they're a superbly collaborative and generous worker. But basically, if they're that type of um, worker and they're in an environment that doesn't appreciate that, that isn't a caring and collaborative environment, which which many of our workplaces aren't really human places, then that type of person is going to be um, burned out because they're just going to be giving and giving and never really focusing on the things they need. And one of another group is what I call the the busy kind of lost souls. They're people that really want purpose in their work. They want meaning from their work, but perhaps their values don't align with the organization. And then what happens is they need periods of time where they can really, really focus on the work they want to do. And they're not given that. They're interrupted constantly with meetings or notifications. So these type of people definitely need, you know, meeting fee Fridays or four-day weeks where they can just focus on on the most impactful things. There's a group who I see as being very much the devalued workers. They're extremely high performers, but they're always judged against a different bar. So particularly we see in research that even when men and women perform equally, men are given the promotion 
based on the potential they may have. And so women um, so often are having to reprove themselves and uh, as, as um, women who are very capable, but yet aren't making the same progress as those around us. Um, that's when we're really, our work and our effort is being devalued. And we also have to keep reproving ourselves. And there's a cycle of burnout. And the first step on that cycle is reproving yourself. It leads to harder work, suppressing your needs, withdrawal. So we really need to be careful about those so highly valuable employees, but who through stereotypes and gender expectations and racial expectations, we're not valuing. Then there's definitely the group that are marginalized. They don't feel like they belong in the workplace. They're on the receipt of daily incivilities, microaggressions, racism, and they're spending so much time just to try fit into a culture that they don't feel like they belong in and, and not being able to be themselves at work. That is also extremely exhausting. And again, those, those folks are not receiving equal pay or promotions either. So lack of autonomy, lack of reward, lack of fairness are all things that have been found to be problematic for, for workplace burnout. And the last group really could be any of these groups, but when it's gone to such an extreme that you're in this state of fight or flight, where really you've you've gone into quite um, you know, a state where you could be experiencing suicide ideation and expressing all your frustrations extremely, feeling extremely resentful, ruminating. It can be coming out in, in quite aggressive ways in the workplace or in complete silence too, in complete disengagement. And so those folks are really in, in a state that they need some medical care. Um, you know, they need a leave of absence, an opportunity to have their you know, nervous system reset because they're really seeing everything as as a threat and a danger. And um, so, yeah, quite a different solution um, for for those types of people. And they can all overlap in some ways, but you can just see that they come from such different places that the solutions for each group would be quite different. So we can see that this is a very complex issue, mm -hmm. different personalities, different factors leading to burnout. How can workplaces, leadership and management, uh, what can they do to tackle these rates of burnout? What can they do to burnout proof if there is such a thing, their organization? Right. Yeah. So I, I think there's um, definitely solutions that are different for each group. And there are solutions that are different at the individual team and organizational level as well. And, and that is, yes, it's multifaceted. It's multi-level. It, this is a, you know, a public health problem. And so it needs these types of public health solutions that there is unfortunately never a silver bullet. And I think there is still a point of awareness that the companies aren't aware necessarily of, of different types of burnout and, and different types of solutions. But again, from my perspective, we, we have very, very clear guidelines, for example, from the National Academy of Medicine on how to deal with burnout. Now, they're not being applied. I understand that. Mm -hmm. But what to do is, is less unknown than, okay, how do you motivate companies to invest? So I think at the individual level, it's very important that there's opportunities to get coaching, 
to develop emotional intelligence because this is really a huge part of burnout is being aware of your own needs, being aware of your own emotions, not suppressing them, understanding how you process stress, um, understanding how you can manage your emotions in difficult situations, um, how you can express them so others understand what you need. Some people will be in situations where they where they need to process trauma and, and toxic workplaces. So there's always definitely work that we need to do ourselves. And particularly for, for people pleasers and people proving themselves all the time, learning how to set boundaries and say no to the unpaid office housework, even though that's against many stereotypes, um, you know, we still have to try to do that without the guilt that we carry that's, that prevents us from doing that. So definitely there's there's quite a bit of personal work that, that people can make. And that's the thing, because if you have some of these personality tendencies and you move from one job to another, you'll take those with you to the next job and potentially burn out there. So um, companies can subsidize something like coaching so that people can work on these things. So, so yeah, it's definitely important. And when you're in a situation where you don't feel in control of other things around you, that's the one thing you can do to empower yourself is, is gain control of your thoughts and feelings and actions, and particularly tracking how many times you say yes without even realizing that you did, uh, how often you're asked to do new things. So um, that's definitely things you can do at the individual level. At the team level, it's really about managers role modeling healthy work habits so that they give permission to those around them to be able to work in the same way. So you have very clear guidelines around limiting work hours, limiting email hours, turning off notifications. So you're not available 24 seven. Also, particularly in developing promotion systems that that reward people for the work they're doing in in very unbiased ways, because essentially a lot of this bias is baked into the systems that we're working in. So managers really need to be part of the process of making sure that everybody's given an equal chance um, to be promoted. But in some ways, none of this really can happen. And we can't have these discussions about burnout and about fairness unless there's psychological safety in a team. Now, that comes partly from the leader being vulnerable about their own struggles, but there really has to be trust, um, very much active listening, um, very clear demonstrations of compassion for solving some of these issues. Because quite often managers are saying, well, I'm trying to do personal check-ins, but my employees won't talk about anything in their personal life. And it's like, well, it's not safe to do so. And I mean, we have this whole discussion of the quiet quitting. And that is when people are disengaging quietly because it's not safe for them to say, I'm struggling here, or this workload is unreasonable. Um, they're trying to set boundaries, but in a way, because it, it, it's not fit, safe for them to, to, to make these things public. But again, if our managers can be part of that process, very much out loud, role modeling, yes, I have limitations, I have boundaries, and these are the ones I want you to also use. Then we have studies out of Harvard, for example, that are very evidence-based that showed role modeling these behaviors and tracking them is going to definitely help employees. But again, the poor managers are also sandwiched in the middle here, yes. that they are helping other people with burnout and they're being pressured by performance on the top. So they can be struggling themselves. 
But then at the organizational level, it's really thinking about flexibility, focus, fairness, and purpose. So organizations need to be thinking, how do we create workplaces where we um, have flexibility, where there's um, full hybrid options, where there are options for, for job sharing, where there's job crafting, all things that help people design the work to, to meet their needs and, and their lifestyles. Focus, how can we focus the four-day week, six-hour days, um, no meeting Fridays, having really clear performance criteria related to the most impactful thing. It's not about whether you've been present in the workplace. It's about are you meeting these and, and very structured and, and objective ways of measuring these things. In particular, for example, if a company had well-being as a key performance indicator, then everything would align to that. So team well-being would become more important than how many hours you had put in at your desk, for example. And then fairness is, is again, this has to be done actively. Um, we we have to have things like paying our employee resource groups that we're asking to help solve some of these problems. We have to have pay equity and equal promotions, and we have to be really proactive about those things. And then also accountability. So if bias isn't being interrupted, and if there is tech, toxic bosses, that there are consequences for that, that we actually decide to put those further other things like transparent pay bans and also getting rid of non-disclosure agreements, those can also help open up and prevent harassment. And then finally, with the, the purpose is, is again, that everything is, is more aligned to a mission that people can believe in. And it's not just words that companies are saying, our company has, you know, caring collaborative values and they haven't operationalized those and they're not demonstrating them every single day. But the more that employees can really see that their job is important and impacts these important company-driven outcomes, then, then that is also really important. So there is actually a lot that organizations can do. Research is out there and they just need to apply it. And that's what you can help them with. That's right. It's nice to see the conversation around burnout expanding to the workplace. Do you think burnout was always an issue at this level? We just didn't talk about it. Or is this quite a new phenomenon? What do you think? Well, burnout has been definitely an issue um, since the 1970s. Um, and particularly in the early days, it was burnout in professions like healthcare, physicians, nurses, teachers, for example, so there definitely used to be different types, particularly, say, therapists, people who were caring for, for others. So there was definitely burnout for, for, for many, many years. And I think we have to recognize that COVID, and actually I had read a paper that was basically saying that COVID was the perfect vector for a mental health epidemic because burnout is chronic stress. And so, of course, we've all been through this extremely chronic stress for multiple years where there's been so much uncertainty, anxiety, and at a time when we're experiencing uncertainty and anxiety, then so much social isolation in that process as well. And so, 
even though we've developed and shown how adaptable and resilient we can be, you know, I'm very much seeing, and, and we can see this in why service industries aren't able to fill jobs, is people are at such high levels of stress that it's very hard to be around people in some ways too, because everybody is experiencing these these high levels of frustration and, and anxiety. So I think that's definitely contributing to it as well. I think also just these concepts that are now part of sort of modern family life, that you you have to be the ideal worker who is available 24-7, plus the ideal mother who is available 24-7. Oh, yes. And COVID just put these two things together in the same place at the same time with no breaks from that in any way. So I think the workplace now can't deny that that people have family lives because previously you had to work like you didn't have kids and parent like you didn't have a job. And now they're, they're, the two have definitely much become much more apparent and people don't want to go back to not having that flexibility yes. um, to manage their lives. Um, so yes, it's. I, I think we're experiencing on a social level so many high expectations. We're in this extremely stress-filled environment at the moment, and yeah, and then the solutions that are being offered are take a vacation, yeah. <laughs> and 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 so again, it's it's like tone deaf, right? That yeah. that it almost makes it worse. Also, is is blaming the individual, and mm-hmm. and this is not. This is like a social complex social problem. So blaming individuals is not only not helping, it's actually exacerbating the problem, particularly because we don't have equal access to these solutions, to healthcare, to culturally appropriate therapists, for example. So it does continue to perpetuate disparities, which, you know, just makes it all worse especially now in the cost of living crisis, but people need to choose between heating and eating, at least over here in Europe. We're very much bracing ourselves for a very, very difficult winter. And uh, I can imagine that some people who would need mental health therapies, perhaps they will be cutting back on those kind of costs. Right. That's so important. And, And for example, here in the US, childcare costs have gone through the roof and and are unavailable as well so yes there there are real economic strains that are that are coming to and unfortunately companies are cutting things here in the US like paid maternity leave the things that actually are the solutions and now we're going backwards on some of them so i i agree it's going to continue to be difficult times it is undeniably difficult and challenging You mentioned that uh, the caregiving professions are more prone to burnout and this leads us to parents because being a parent is also providing care non-stop and it's the kind of thing where you can't really take a holiday, you can't leave the job, you you can't really change, you can't give your children back. What is the difference between burnout as an employee or working mom, working parent burnout and parental burnout? Is there a difference at all or no? Yes. Yeah, there there are different features um, for sure. 
you know, I think that's the other part too with the current generation could be looking after children and elderly parents at the same time as having a job. So that sandwich um, generation is definitely struggling with with both ends um, of of the childcare spectrum. And so in some ways too, you, you voiced what is really the status quo or the social norm, which is you can't have a break from these things. But I really encourage mums particularly to take, you know, a long weekend or if possible, a week away from your kids, because it's such a a mental load and it's such a challenging job that we do actually deserve breaks from it. So we have to give each other permission to to take those breaks um, and also say, yeah, being a good mom is the mom who does take breaks from her kids. So she'll come back more more energized. And yes, it takes logistical challenges to do this. Um, Sometimes, you know, there there could be cost implications, but it's something that that moms very much deserve. When I started to try and take those types of breaks, it was like night and day. My brain began to work again. My confidence came back. Yeah, I came back a different energized mother. And, and that's so important for me. And it's and it's so important for the kids. So parental burnout is newer in a, as a phenomenon, but also very well researched. There's been some large, large international studies conducted and actually showing, for example, that in the US, parental burnout is higher because of our individual nature of society, where we're very much saying you can pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and you're supposed to look after yourself. In that type of culture, it's very hard to ask for help. And help is one of the first things that we really have to be able to do. So studies have shown that that can be very challenging for parents. And so in some ways, you're experiencing the same exhaustion. You're also experiencing that you're not enjoying the role, the job anymore, and that it's also changed from having a time where maybe it was okay to now sort of going, it's not okay. It's that noticing and being very aware of the change in your energy around it. And then having a lot of shame because of that change in energy and enjoyment. And there's many times where, where I'm saying, I don't enjoy parenting. And so I have to, you know, that can be very hard. And then also if it if it get, becomes extreme, then you, you also develop some of those features of sort of depersonalization where, where you're not seeing your children as, as children anymore. So it, in the same way as burnout, which is actually very serious, the consequences are very serious. Um, the same is the same for, for parental burnout. So again, we shouldn't take these things lightly. Sometimes people wear them as a badge of honor and it's just, yes, you're exhausted and you're overworked. But, you know, when you actually go into experiencing some of the more serious syndromes, this is, this is not something to be taken lightly. So again, parents really need as much support as they can from, from family and friends, but as much as anything, it is giving yourself permission to take a break and to set boundaries around your parenting as well. For me, particularly, I was quite an authoritarian parent, which I had been brought up in that way, didn't know any different and didn't like that I was that type of parent. That was the thing. I was feeling so uncomfortable and disliking myself as that type of parent. And then when I learned other styles of parenting, for example, I follow a curriculum called positive discipline, where you are, you're letting your kids 
problem solve more often. You have family meetings where the kids put things on the agenda that they want to talk about and they help problem solve. So I definitely micromanage a lot less. The kids are a lot happier. They're, they're a lot more responsible as well. So there's, there's definitely things we can do as parents, but particularly in the home, sharing the load in the home, because this is the problem. You know, the, the mums are the ones who generally are, are carrying the mental load. And again, when I see dads who become stay-at-home dads, they then experience that as well, that they really have so many different things that you're trying to juggle that it becomes overwhelming. And that's a challenge. And for, for, for couples who are sharing the parenting load, I always feel like, you know, our jobs are 100% of our time and parenting is 100% of our time. So even if you share that, each person has 150% load, you know, there's just more that we are expecting to do in, in the same 24 hours of the day, which I think is very challenging. So it takes a lot of self-awareness, mm-hmm. to not just spot the signs of burnout, but uh, I really like how you mentioned that you didn't like the kind of parenting, the authoritarian parenting that you you caught yourself doing, caught yourself repeating. And I think it really takes reflection and mm-hmm. self-awareness. And it's not it's not something that everybody would do or mm-hmm. think about doing. So perhaps and and yeah, I mean I got to crisis point, so I sort of had to, okay. but I agree. I I was not a I did not have high emotional intelligence. And and to be honest, you know, growing up in the UK and um, I was at English boarding school because my father had a job overseas all the time. And and you're not, you don't learn to process emotions or express emotions in that environment at all. And that's what's the key. I read this amazing parenting book called The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read by uh, Philippa Parry. She's a British writer. And basically she was saying, let your children experience their emotions because through experiencing their emotions, they start to understand and communicate what they need. And when I realized that for them, but for me too, it went, no wonder if someone asked me, what do I want? What do we need? I have no idea because I haven't actually even recognized how I feel about anything. I've just suppressed those emotions. And particularly we can think of us as when we're stressed, it's like we're the frog that's been put in a pot of cold water and then gently the heat is turned on and the frog doesn't realize it's in boiling water till it's too late. And that's the thing. We don't recognize our stress creeping up and elevating, but certainly when we do actually take a break. And for example, I, I took a medical leave for three months. I managed to reset my fight flight system. But when I went back, oh my God, the stress hit me like a truck. Um, And so this is the thing when companies are telling you to take a break. For example, I have a friend who, who has a, you know, potentially toxic boss, the boss went away for a month. And when that person then came back, they could tell the difference very much physiologically in their body, even their heart rate monitor. um, One of their devices was showing that they were having abnormal responses. And so again, it's, it's like our bodies can be, tell us what's going on and we need to be able to learn to, to listen to them. But yeah, accepting that self-awareness and developing it is a whole skill set for sure. And parents, 
are encouraged to develop that and also teach that to their children because those children benefit infinitely if they grow up with this self-awareness being the norm, how wonderful that is, the kind of life it sets them up to and how they can model that to their children. That's absolutely true. There's just benefits all around for sure. Let's talk about the uh, maternal war and the motherhood penalty. What do these terms mean exactly for those who might be unfamiliar with them? And why are they so prevalent in certain industries, like in, in STEM? And actually, I'll add to that, there is also a fatherhood forfeit. So if there is a father who is also trying to be a solo parent and wants flexibility and paid leave, there are also, or are also forfeits for fathers who are trying to play the full fatherhood role. So the, the motherhood penalty is when we are paid less. So, so what happens is when a mother becomes a mother, organizations see her as less committed to her job. So they start to give her fewer promotion opportunities and start to pay her less. Often mothers come out of the workforce and when they come back in, they cannot come back in at the same level or with the same pay. And so the, the motherhood penalty is the penalty in pay and fathers in exactly the same situation are considered, oh, he's now a dad, therefore he must be having to provide for his family more, therefore he's even more committed to work. So the same scenario leads to two opposite outcomes for the dads and the mums. And, you know, um, such a high percentage of mothers are the main provider in a family these days. So this assumption that they'll be less committed because they're a mother is, is just such an old stereotype now. And the maternal wall is the expression of that inability to get the promotions. And again, like I mentioned, the statistics show us, you know, women are not CEOs, we're not in the C-suite. And again, it's not necessary because we're not capable, but often we're not given those opportunities or by the time that you get there, because you've had to overcome so many barriers that you're really in a state of burnout and, and potentially ill health, particularly women of color can be extremely experiencing all sorts of symptoms with hair loss and adrenal fatigue, if they do get into these leadership positions and then are the only woman of color there, um, it's extremely isolating and can be such an energy drain to try and be in that type of environment. So there's definitely these barriers borne out by, by the research that shows how we're um, assessed in performance, but also by the statistics of the, the lack of representation. Yeah. I always look at female physicians as one of the examples of this, because again, studies have been showing that female physicians are more likely to have better surgical outcomes. They're also in the emergency room, more likely to save a life. And again, when you study things like emergency rooms and, and where there's no rhyme or reason who treats who and who gets what, it's just whatever's happening in that moment. And, and female physicians are much like more likely to save a life in that situation. So they have, you know, higher skills in some ways, but they're actually 250% more likely to attempt suicide. So, you know, this is this is such a a tragedy yeah. um, because they're in these environments and STEM, as you said, mentioned, it's, it's particularly challenging for women 
and STEM, if you add the extra M to it, is, is also the medical environment too. So there's a lot of data, for example, showing that women in, in science, for example, one of the things we do is, is, is important to our careers is, is publishing. And so mothers and fathers, you know, academics, men and women have equal publishing rates prior to being a parent. And then after becoming a parent, women's publishing, mothers' publishing rates drops off by 83% over a 15-year period. So it would take you, for example, five additional years to try and get that back. And sometimes the situation as well in, in academia is that both men and women are provided parental leave. And what we call is the tenure clock is stopped. So the clock before you get promoted is put on pause if you're a parent. Now, in that time, mothers are mothering. And then in that situation, if the father is not engaging in, in parental activities, he's he's publishing and getting his research more. So it's shown to actually, in some situations, increase the disparities and the data from journal articles. So Elsevier is a, a very large publisher across the world, and they looked at all their publishing rates during that period of lockdown, in the first period of lockdown. And actually the publishing rates went went up because more people had more time to focus on publishing instead of, say, teaching or other parts of their jobs. But there was a huge difference between men and women, and they were equally having their papers accepted, but there were far fewer women able in that time to to submit papers because they were the ones in lockdown focused on their children's schooling, et cetera. So these disparities exist from, as I say, totally objective data assessed by the publisher. You know, there was no there was no gender agenda in there at all. It's just really what the data is showing. So yeah, it's it's a big struggle. What can be a solution to this, to change these statistics? Is there a solution to we need a whole cultural change? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely needs to be a, a cultural change. But again, how does cultural change occur? That a change is when individuals act and and expect different things. And then it also does come from when, when policies reward different behaviors. So in my mind, we definitely need more leaders who are who have experienced full-time caregiving so they understand the strain and the consequences of it and the importance of it as well so again dads who have been you know solo parents sometimes that's dads who who actually have been divorced and have you know spent the week on week off with with their kids then they know what parenting is is like during those times and how challenging it can be to work and parent so i think those types of leaders we we need to be able to see succeeding but again how can they succeed you know with all the barriers at the moment so it's a little bit chicken and egg in that situation but i think if we can have more collaborative and and human workplaces that actually promote people with collaborative skills. So, I mean, I was interviewing someone last week who had a lot of optimism around this. So one, I think we can have a lot more optimism about the skills that we need, which are not soft skills, the the human intelligence, the emotional intelligence, the empathy, those are all things that um, robots are, are, are not going to develop. And so as things became 
become more automated in the world, there will be very valuable human skills. And those human skills are much more likely to be these collaborative, empathetic ones. These are not going to be authoritarian skills that no. succeed in, in the work of the future. So, so that will change. And these skills are, as will not be considered soft skills. They will be considered the most essential human skills for, for human workplaces. And then also really generationally, it's changing. So you know, the current generations coming into the workforce, they don't have the same expectations of 24-7 working. They do have greater expectations for work-life balance, for socially um, impactful, meaningful work. I mean, companies now have their environmental and social governance expectations. And, and again, the younger generations really are driven by those sorts of outcomes and expectations. So that will change. And I think too, it was really interesting. There was quite a sort of generational disparity recently. So the author, Malcolm Gladwell, who who's kind of very well-written and professor though more and an author more. He basically was saying, what does the world come to that we won't get out of our houses to work and that we're stuck on our devices? And the response from the younger generation was, we've grown up with these devices. We're very good at socializing and connecting with these devices. Our lives are extremely global and full because of these devices. So, you know, don't, don't sit there and pontificate about what our lives are like, because we're actually potentially leading more connected lives than you. So I, I think there is going to be this tension. And as you see the younger generation, you know, developing companies to solve some of these problems as, as well, I, I think that's also going to be um, exciting. So, Definitely, I think there's got to be some sort of widespread cultural change for this to become more acceptable. But I think in the meantime, one little tip that I also give to mums is to develop, and again, it sounds so sexist, but it's a mediocre man mindset. And I had a coach um, and one of my podcast interviewees that that described this, um, Dr. Lara Kaur, and it, it's such an excellent tool. So the example I had as well was a friend was putting together a proposal. And part of that process is to read other books in your field and say, okay, what is the competitive marketing comparison? And she said she was getting stuck on this point. And I said, okay, why is that? She goes, well, I'm reviewing about 30 books. And I was like, okay, no wonder you're stuck. How many would a mediocre man review? And straight away she went, two. And I was like, okay, maybe do four then, you know, and it's almost like we absolutely can imagine what somebody else could do. If you had asked, what would another woman who's ambitious and busy, what would she do? She'd probably say 40, 50, right? <laughs> but if we can actually, and that's the problem, we're, we're role modeling to each other such unreasonable expectations. We're not the people we should be looking to. We should be looking to what would, you know, a confident single man who has no other responsibilities, what would he do? He would do so much less. He would prioritize himself 
if you think about, say, volunteering in the school, I often say, you know, my husband doesn't even know that there are volunteering opportunities, let alone feel guilty that he's not doing them, (laughs) whereas I'm doing them and still feeling guilty that I'm not doing enough, right? So we have to create, even if it's a, a totally imaginary avatar that is a different bar that we can work by. Let's imagine what somebody who did put themselves first, what would they do? And and, um, I think that's the thing. Imagine even for a week, every decision you made was putting yourself first in that decision. You'd make so many decisions differently. And I think what's important about that is asking, would this person make these decisions and feel guilt? And they wouldn't because they wouldn't even be putting that expectation that they're they're not doing something they should be doing. Um, because I do think it's partly the guilt that that also, even if we make decisions to set boundaries and say no, we still are expending energy on on the guilt we feel afterwards. So again, that that's something we we have to start to change the expectations around, um, but also what work to decrease that. Um, in ourselves by by developing more more self-worth and realizing no, we very much deserve to be able to put limits on how much we give back to the world. Absolutely. But again, if you're in a season of burnout, yeah, you have to limit what you're giving. But if you're in a season where you've refilled your cup and and you're ready to you know help others and give and that's fulfilling and and it's something that that actually energizes you then yes of course do that so it's really paying attention like you said to how it makes us feel in our bodies and what work and what what parts of life energize us and you know even in the situation in in our household for example you know my my son has lots of challenges and those can drain me but now I admit that, you know, I admit to my husband, you know, having these conversations with him is draining for me. And my husband will say, yep, you're the right person to do it, but thank you for doing it. Cause I appreciate how hard it is for you to do it. And that makes a difference, right? So it is, I first had to admit, you know, this is hard. I'm, I, it does, it, it, it is draining. But again, when you're appreciated for the things you do, that also starts to re-energize you too. Yes. And I think that international report you mentioned, they they do say with parental burnout that it's often a lack of appreciation that also contributes because parents generally, at least in the Western world, are very much undervalued. Parenting care work is, is undervalued. And then as a parent, you know that what you do is really important it's a huge responsibility, but you're constantly getting the message that this is not not important, and perhaps this is something that contributes. Yeah, to yeah, and I, I think particularly, say for example, in the US during COVID, there was child tax credits, and they've done studies to show that those are related to reduced family stress because it de-stresses the parents to have that financial support and therefore the kids are also then less less stressed. So again, you know, the differences in in how much a government puts towards a child is just huge between the US and and potentially some of the other European countries. So again, it it is how much do you value that? And in the US, there's a leader, Reshma Samjani, and she is basically trying to make sure that we do get 
paid leave over here. And it is, it's not just that you're getting paid leave in in the workplace, but that the unpaid labor at home is recognized and, and also paid because until we value that work and until we pay our caregivers in caregiving situations, you know, living wages, then um, it, we don't value the, that that's such an important role in society. So again, how you change those, those policies is challenging because the, the people in the positions to, to change those policies are ones who have not experienced the, the role as a caregiver. So yeah, that's why, again, I think it's so important that, that we have these experiences of, of caregiving leaders emerging and, and feeling that they can change policies based on their experience versus being judged and mocked in some situations. Dads are mocked for taking parental leave. Um, Yeah. yeah, So it is, it is such a challenge, but again, I do, I do think it's, um, we can have hope. And, and again, the sort of personal tip back to that one is one of the ones that we did and that really helped us is understanding your love languages. And that can be in the workplace as well as home, just understanding what other people need, like what gift they would need. Some people actually need a physical gift. Other people need a hug. Other people need words of encouragement and affirmation. There's so many different ways that we can experience and and be energized. My husband, for example, he he needs quality time. He needs me to just sit down on the sofa with him and spend time with him. And I would never have considered doing that before because that is not my love language. So I think it's so important for us to understand as much as possible what we each need because what happens is we tend to give people what we need and it's not necessarily what what they need it's not the language that they need yeah um so it's okay if you happen to get a good match and the person in your (laughs) workplace responds in the same way you do but that's so often not the case and Again, there's other personality um, tests, but in particular one that's emerging too is called the Enneagram. And that basically shows you nine different personality types and shows you what are the drivers of those personality types. And when you start to understand it, it, it's based on what is in fact the fear that we are operating from. And when you start to understand the fear that other people operate from, different reasons from yourself you have so much more compassion with them because you realize they're just trying to do the best, but they also are trying to prove themselves around a certain thing that that they're struggling with. And when you understand that, it gives you so much more compassion because you know your own fears and your own struggles. And you then start to see, okay, sometimes you don't recognize it in other people because they look their struggles and their fears look so different from yours. But once you start to understand some of those types of fears that people can be operating from and how they cope to manage those fears, because it can look very different to your way of coping as well. And then you suddenly go, oh, okay, they're just the same as me, (laughs) struggling away and, and doing their best. And that's, I think, what's so important that we can have so much more compassion with each other. Absolutely. What would need to change on a societal or policy level to reduce the rates of burnout and support parents more? What changes would you like to see? 
I think really sort of at the the, the policy level, particularly here in the US, and it, it, it is then different to other countries. Um, so we definitely need to have paid leave for all caregivers. That's something that has to change. We need to have subsidized childcare so that it's affordable. That has to change. We potentially also need universal pre-K, which is education support before school, because that also changes educational outcomes and provides support then also to families um, to access that care. So there are really high levels of that as well. We don't have pay equity legislation here. It was not ratified um, from back in the 70s. And I know some states now are trying to move towards having pay equity. And one of the things they're saying is you have to have transparent wages. And even that is creating so much disruption and and companies are are refusing to, to do that. So again, we do need the legislation Companies, for example, if they were forced to have a certain number of male to female ratio on their boards, for example, again, people are very uncomfortable with things like quotas, but but actually, you know, we're in a situation of inequality and to try and actually get to equity where it's not that we're equal, but they were giving people enough support to get them from a disadvantage to a normal place. Those things can can be supported by actually having targets to do that because there are targets sometimes for how many diverse people you bring into an organization, but not how many you retain and how many actually get to the to the C-suite because it's very much meritocracy based. But, you know, meritocracy is based on the privilege you started with. And so that's not equal across society. So yeah, there are very large government changes we need and and legislation and proper enforcement of that legislation can create change. And there's a fantastic book, What Works, Designing for Gender Equality by Iris Burnett. And, and basically, yeah, there are so many ways that we can make the right thing, the easier thing to do, the default. And actually in Denmark recently, they mandated that there is um, paternity leave, that that the fathers do have to take some leave. And again, that would just be seen as extreme, you know, state interference, government interference in the US. But actually it's, you know, a very supportive policy in other countries. So yeah, there, there are really government level policies that that can support this. But in some ways too, as I mentioned, Reshma Sanjani already, she said, I can't wait for the government to grow a heart. So we have to put pressure on our businesses to do this. And essentially the businesses benefit from this. When they provide the right support for families, they're going to have engaged, loyal, productive employees. So their businesses are going to benefit. And when they start to realize that they are paying for these benefits in their employees, they might start to say to the government, okay, we need help in in retaining our employees. So we need you to actually make these decisions. And again, CEOs, because of the, the, you know, the laws that we have in the US here around how people are funded and elected, 
um, CEOs are extremely powerful and they could use that power to advocate for their employees because it will benefit their employees and it will benefit their company to advocate for the government to make these changes. So again, very strong forces that we need to do this because certainly in the US, you know, we're our numbers around our paid leave is some of the worst in the industrialized world. And then even things like maternal health, maternal morbidity has been increasing and, and is almost globally one of the worst. And so again, there there are really extreme consequences yeah. to these um situations. And yeah, we need change. But change is is complicated and challenging. So I appreciate that. That's where I come from with my behavior science. So I understand how hard that can be, but that doesn't mean that we can't all start to take those those steps, um, small steps. And again, as individuals, we can influence things. Um, the more we work together as a collective and actually elevate these problems together, then that's when change also can happen. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If people would like to work with you, where can they find you? Thank you. Yes, the the best way to find me is on my website, drjacquelinekerr.com. I also have the podcast, Overcoming Working Mum Burnout, so people can hear me on there as well, interviewing mums. Recently, I've started interviewing dads as well so that I can understand a little better this, this fatherhood forfeit and how we can have men as, as active participants in, in this um, mission. And uh, yeah, I have a TEDx talk as well, so people can find that on YouTube. But all of this and free resources and my services are all on my website, drjacquelinekerr.com. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today, Jacqueline. And thank you for listening, everyone. This was the Wellbeing in Focus podcast with Gabriela Campelli-Ignaz. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.